Well, one of the great heroes of the Reformation in England was a man by the name of John Knox. And if you were to go to Scotland today and go into one of the Scottish churches, they will identify the pulpit of that church as the John Knox pulpit because it was John Knox who was the bold, fiery preacher who brought the Reformation to Scotland. John Knox, that legendary preacher in Scotland, had a terminal illness at the end of his life. And in his remaining days, he requested that Scripture be read to him every day. And that portion of Scripture that he wanted to be read and heard every day up until the day he died was the 17th chapter of John. In fact, he died on November 24th, Uh, 1572, and history records that the last words he heard before entering glory was John chapter 17. And certainly, though John Knox heard those words, this is certainly the last testament and will of the Lord Jesus Christ. Open your Bible to John chapter 17 as we consider and have been looking at his high priestly prayer You know, the prayers, as I've mentioned, in the Gospels are very rare and very brief that our Lord prays, Um, brief words here and there, certainly the, maybe we would call it the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, even not close to the content and the truth that's developed in John 17. But as we come into John 17, this prayer is remarkable, it is Stunning! It is breathtaking. It's almost so deep and so rich that in many ways it's even grasping at trying to communicate it so that we understand its richness and depth. Now, remember, as we come to this prayer, it's Thursday night, late Thursday night. The cross is maybe just hours away, and it is in John 17, 1, When Jesus had spoken these words, it says that he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said to his father, the hour has come. And so he's praying to his heavenly father and he's praying along three lines of thinking. He is first praying for himself in 17, 1 through 5. Then secondly, he's praying for his disciples in verse 6 down through 19. And as he's praying for his disciples, he prays for great truths, trusting that you remember those or have written those down. He prays for the people first that the Father gave him. He's praying not for the world in this prayer, but for the people that the Father gave him. Secondly, he's praying for our protection from the world. He said, I kept them in your name. I kept them in your name. I have guarded them. And uh, specifically from the evil one, and not one of them is perished. So he prays for the people. He prays for our protection. Thirdly, he prays for our purity. He said in 1717, sanctify them. The ideal is make them holy in the truth and your word is truth. And then finally, he prays for the purpose 
of sending us into his world. So he prays first for himself, one through five. Then he prays for his disciples, which is a way to say that he's praying for his apostles, those who were directly hearing that prayer. And now thirdly, running from verse 20 down through 26, he's praying for all future believers. In essence, he's praying for the church. I think I've reminded you a couple times that the Lord Jesus in that high priestly prayer was praying for you. He was praying for us. In fact, let me read that prayer to you, at least for all believers. Begin at verse 20, follow along. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through your word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Let's stop right there. He's praying for the church. And what's interesting, beloved, about this prayer, it's unique in this sense, is that his prayer is not linear here. He's not, even as I read it, you can tell, I and you, you know, I and you, you and me, Father, you and me. It's not linear. He is not speaking this maybe as an epistle where you're line upon line. He is profoundly circling back to the themes, circling and circling and circling back to the themes here of unity and love. And he does that over and over that even... I admit to you, makes it very difficult to outline. But he's praying for all future believers. That's us. He's praying for the church. And you might ask, what does he pray for regarding the church? Well, he prays for two key areas. He will do that in 19, or excuse me, in 20 through 24. And then he will summarize. Uh, all of his ministry in 25 and 26. Those two key areas that he prays for is, let's put it this way, as best we can, that he prays for our unity in 21 through 23, and then he prays for our love in 24 through 26. That's really the theme. He's praying that we would share unity and therefore advance the gospel. And then secondly, he's praying for our love that we might be placed on mission as well. And in both of those main heads, there are purposes attached to it, as you will see. But let's look first here, that he prays for our unity. He prays for our unity. He says in verse 20, 21, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me, through their word, that they may all be one. 
Now, you'll notice he prays for our unity. He's not asking for, look at the opening verse there in verse 20, these only. Obviously, he had been talking to the disciples, praying actually out loud to the Father. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John the Apostle records this. And as he prayed for himself first, he's praying for his disciples, the 11, the apostles. But as you come into the text there, I'm not praying for these only. You say, well, how do you know he was praying to them? Well, if uh, you go back to verse 9, he says, I am praying for them. In other words, it was a specific prayer to the disciples, and certainly those truths applied to us. If you glance down at 1719, he says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself for the disciples' sake, for the sake of the word of God. But now you note, look again in verse 20, he says, I do not pray for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Even that last phrase, through their word, that of course is apostolic doctrine and we've went through that. That as Jesus ascended, as he gave the Holy Spirit, he gave to these apostles, to the prophets and the apostles, Ephesians 2.20, the very word of God. And so beloved, understand just here, we would say by way of interpretation that this passage refers not just to unity in our nation, but it refers to the unity that exists among believers. He's praying in verse 20, not for these only, but for all of those, here's the key phrase, verse 20, who will believe in me through their word. And so it is a passage that is directed, if you will, to disciples, and that unity comes amongst believers. Now, his prayer specifically here is focused on this thought. Look at verse 21. He says, and it's a purpose clause, that they may all be one. That's his theme. And so here he prays first for our unity, that they all may be one. Now, that's the theme, and certainly uh, many, I would say, confuse this verse. Some would say, hey, shouldn't we just have one church? I mean, why is there so many different churches? Why is there so many different denominations? And why are there so many churches and denominations that can't seem to find their purpose? And they almost hold, maybe some of you do, Jesus Christ accountable for the lack of apparent relational unity. There is a word, it's called ecumenism, and as we know it today, it is a word that compromises truth for the sake of unity. In other words, there's a ton of churches doing that today. There are a ton of churches sacrificing this very word so that they could have some kind of relational, functional unity. Ecumenism does that. It's also a word we can call liberalism. It strips the gospel of truth. It strips the gospel of the words of truth, and it defangs, if you will, doctrine for us that's actually very helpful. 
In fact, I think you would understand, and it may be the very reason you're at this church, is that unity often comes at the expense of truth. Now, I just want you to know, I don't know how you've read this text, that that's not at all what this text is talking about, okay? It's not talking about some relational unity. It's not talking about, even in the truest sense, some functional unity, though that is there. You said, well, what's it talking about? Well, look again at the text in verse 21. It says that they may be one. Here's the key. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. There, the unity comes, the unity exists, let me say this this way, in the Trinity. The main point of the text, beloved, is a spiritual unity that is derived from the oneness of God the Father and God the Son. If I could say it this way, and I think you could handle theology, even for those of you who are in junior high, it is what we would call an intra-Trinitarian relationship. An intra-Trinitarian relationship is the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And inside that intra-Trinitarian relationship is perfect unity in that relationship. Now you say, okay, tell me more about what this unity means here. Well, this unity, let me just say this first, is rooted in God's revelation of the Son that the disciples believed. In other words, if you want to talk about unity, it's bound up in the revelation of the Father to the Son to the disciples who have believed in Christ. In fact, look at 17 verse 8. Here it is. For I, Jesus Christ is speaking here, he's praying, have given them the words. That is the word of God. You'll note here, even in his role as the second person, I have given them the words that you gave me, and I don't have to show you that. Everything he spoke, came directly from the Father. And the Father sent the Son, and one of the chief responsibilities of the Son was here that he gave them, the disciples, the words that you gave me. Now watch this. Here's where unity is bound up. And they have received them. To remind you of John chapter one. They have come secondly to know in truth that I came from you, and they have, there's the key, have believed that you have sent me. There's the thought. Here are, who's he talking to? He's talking to us, the church. He's talking to these disciples early. Tell me about what we know about the disciples. Well, in this sense, they have received the truth. They have come to know in the truth, and they have believed the truth. 
So unity, whatever you might think, walking into this passage is speaking of an intra-Trinitarian relationship between the Father, the Son, and certainly in the context of all of the farewell discourse, the Holy Spirit. In fact, glance down again at verse 20 on this idea of intra-Trinitarian relationship and where unity lies. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will, that's you, And you know when I say, for those who will, and that's you, this is the word of God to you this morning. Let him who speaks, speak as it were, the oracles of God. In other words, he's saying not just for these, the 11, verse 20, but also for those, that's you, who will believe in me, and I love this phrase, through their word, through the apostolic doctrine. This is the thought. It is that perfect relationship. There is no, you, there, let me say it this way, there's no oneness, there's no unity apart from Jesus Christ. And that's a huge statement because we got a lot of people who are desperately seeking to see things unified, but this unity, oh, it will practically demonstrate itself in love for us, we'll get there, But here it's grounded in the relationship of the Father and the Son. And so unity only comes from being born again. It only comes from believing in Christ. Look at 17.3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, lots of fake gods, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that is eternal life. Now these, we have, as it says in verse eight, received the truth, come to know the truth, have believed in the truth, but you might say, well, believe what? Well, again, this is the exposition of John's gospel for a few years now. You believe that the son is co-equal with God the Father. You believe that he is co-existent with God the Father. You believe that he is co-eternal with God the Father. And this unity of common eternal life is shared by all who believe the truth, and it results in one body of Christ. And so there is just one universal body. There's many expressions of that locally. Now, let me just say this, just so that we can establish what this means. Because there are a lot of people who bypass this very foundation, even in Christendom, and want unity, at, as I said, at the expense of truth. But if you are in Christ this morning, you already have that unity. In other words, you already have that unity with God the Father and God the Son. That unity is passed on to all, Jesus said, who will believe in me through the word. That is the unity of all believers, of all cultures, of all language that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I saw something on uh, Instagram. My daughter-in-law put it up with my son, Johnny, preaching in, in Thailand. And my wife and I were rejoicing because this, he's there right now. He's there, and then he, they're on their way to New Zealand doing Hume International. I saw Johnny just preaching to these students. He's doing a student's conference where they fly all in over that island and some from other places of that 
part of the terrain and he was preaching Christ, then I know that whatever those students there who are in Christ, they bear that same unity. In other words, if you're a believer here, you're combining all cultures, all languages that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, tell me a little bit more. Well, look at verse 21 of chapter 17. That they all may be one, and here's that phrase, just as you, Father, are in me. It's praying for our unity, but just as you are, Father, in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. That's the point. Our unity is derived from the unity of the Father, the Son, the relationship. And you might ask the question, well, tell me more about that intra-Trinitarian relationship. Well, uh, I know a few things here from the Gospel of John. You say, in what ways or how is Christ one with the Father? How is the Father one with Christ? Well, there's a lot I could say, but let me say this to you in a concise way. John chapter 5, Jesus talks about he and the Father having the same authority. Whatever authority you think God the Father has, God the Son has, because God the Father gave, in John chapter 5, the Son that authority. The Son and the Father share, in John chapter 5, the same purpose. The Father and the Son have the same power. They have the same honor. The Father and the Son in John chapter 5, 26 have the same power to give life. In fact, you can go on. The Son and the Father share the same will. In other words, they're perfectly one in that relationship. They do, in John 5, 30, the same works. In John 5, 36, they have the same nature. In John 7, in John 12, in John 14, they teach and share the same doctrine. They have in John's gospel the same purpose in saving men. They share as well the same glory. So he's praying that you might be one. I just want you to understand the foundation of that. Just as the Father and the Son are one, sharing the same authority, sharing the same purpose, sharing the same power, the same honor, the same will, the same works, the same nature, the same teaching, and the same glory. Now, what's interesting here, look again at 21. You, it says, Father, just as you, Father, are in me. Now, in other words, as he's praying, God the Father is in God the Son. It's speaking of that union. In fact, go back to 14, chapter 14. Look back there and look at this. I think it will highlight it. In verse 10, he's preaching there, of course, in that farewell discourse. He says to those whom he's preaching to in 14.10, do not believe, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. 
He's speaking of that intra-Trinitarian relationship. Look at 14, verse 20. In that day, and I think he's speaking there as I taught. You can go check that on the web. On that day of the resurrection, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. So here, the Father is in the Son. However, the Son is in the Father. And and in this sense, you say, in what way? He's dependent on the Father. He's obedient to the Father. He's obedient to the Father's will. The Son prays to the Father. The Father then commissions him and sends him. And the Son in that commission obeys him. They are one, just as it says in 21, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So, beloved, listen, the Son is co-eternal. He's co-equal with the Father and the Godhead, yet he is dependent and obedient in going to the cross. And though they're one, certainly we've taught this, they're distinct, though, in role. But the Father's in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. In fact, just go back for a second. Look at John chapter 5. This is an incredible passage Maybe the clearest Christology of the relationship of the Father and the Son in the whole Bible. And this is Trinitarian doctrine this morning. In chapter 5, remember he healed the man at the pool on the Sabbath, which is a no-no, okay? Not only did he perform that work, not only did he have that power, you understand. Not only did he have that authority, Not only did he give the word, but that shouldn't surprise us. He said, let there be light, and there was light. He said, let the stars come into the sky, and it was all there. But here in 5.16, he healed by his word. And then it says in verse 16, 5.16, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them as a profound statement. My father is working until now, and I am what? Working. Do you, you know how um, uh, just that was such a, a spark, that statement, my father is working, and now I am working? You see, because in the context there in Jewish culture, most often a son would work for his father. And whatever the father did, the son did. And so it was a highly agrarian culture, if you will, And if the father worked in agriculture, the son worked in agriculture. Usually if the father was a builder, the son was a builder. If the the father was a carpenter, the son was a carpenter. Now, I don't know if that would be true here today. Let me just see a show of hands from you fathers. How many of you do what your uh, father did? How many of you in here do what your father did in Very few. And I'm sure in our context here in the Central Valley, it's higher than any other place I lived. In fact, I could ask the question, how many of you women, maybe by way of work, do what your mom did? Let me see, just a show of hands. Maybe a few more, but at the best, maybe 5%. But you understand in that day, that wasn't the case. The son did what the father did. Whatever the father did, the son did in in high, high percentages. Do you understand verse 17 a little bit more? My father is working until now, 
And oh, by the way, I'm working. (laughs) In fact, it was so inflammatory to them. Look at verse 18. This is why the Jews were all the more seeking to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself what? Equal with God. The Father's working, I'm working, okay? Look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son, shows him all that, all that he himself is doing. You have to understand, look at that phrase. The father loves the son, and so he discloses everything to the son intra Trinitarian relationship between the father and the son. So you see, the father, or the son, I should say, loves the father. And I could also say here in that scripture, the father loves the son. And he is praying that we might be one in unity as the intra-Trinitarian relationship is one. You say, well, how could that happen? Well, look again at verse 21. Go back to John 17. He says there that they may be one, that they may all be one. You have to memorize this. Just as you, Father, are in me, I establish that, and I in you, this is radical, that they also may be, I love that phrase, in us. That they also may be in us. In other words, the unity is perfected in us. Now what do you mean, what does Jesus mean in that prayer when he prays in us? I think he just means this, if you can believe this. The Father and the Son indwell in you. The Father's in the Son, the Son's in the Father, and they, at least in this passage, and the Holy Spirit, John 14, 15, and 16, dwells in us. The Holy Spirit lives in you. They take up residence in you, all three members of the Trinity, in your life and in your heart. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, that's what the Bible says. Look back at John 14. We've studied it before. I mean, just look at it. In John 14, 21, just go back. See it with your eyes. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by the Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Such intimacy there. We are going to manifest ourselves to them, and we will come to him, to the one who loves me. He will keep my word, and it's amazing that the Father will love us. You say, what is this back in 1721? Again, that they also may be in us. He's talking about our union with Christ. And if you're in Christ, if let me say it another way, if you're born again, 
If you've come to a saving relationship within Christ, he's taken you out of the world and has placed you into what we sometimes call a mystical union with him. You are part of him. The father's in the son. The son is in the father. And now we, by way of our relationship with Christ, are in him. In fact, if you want to see this, I'll just show you a couple places. Look over in Ephesians just for a moment. Maybe the words will help it when we talk about in him or in us or in Christ. This is one of the most important doctrines there can be in all of the scripture. But Ephesians talks about this. You can underline these words if you want in Ephesians. I don't know if you've ever seen this in chapter 1. Even as he chose us, here it is, in him before the foundation of the world. In other words, even our relationship by union comes through the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. He chose us in him. You're in him. And that's why if you're in him, your salvation is secure. If he gave you to the son before the foundation of the world, then there's nothing you can do that would cause you to fall out of his grace. You're in him. In fact, keep looking on. Look at verse 6 to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us, here's the phrase, in the beloved. In the beloved, he has given us his grace and blessed us in the beloved. Look at verse seven. In him, there's that relationship again. We have redemption. I love that phrase. Look at verse nine. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. Look at verse 13. It says, In him you also, after hearing or when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise. Beloved, let me just say this. If you're talking about unity, you already have it. You say, well, Scott, what does that mean to me? Well, listen, I, I probably should save that to the end. If God the Father is in God the Son, and the Son is in the Father, and they are in us, dwelling in us, living in us, then how could you be disunified from anybody in this flock? In other words, if the relationship doesn't take me practically to what you're you're supposed to do, actually go back and look at the relationship with the Father, and you'll understand unity. We are beloved in Christ. We live in God as believers. God lives in us. We live in Christ. Christ lives in us. We live in the Spirit, and the Spirit lives in us. Jesus is one with the Father, and we are one with Christ so that we are with the Father also, and we share in that spiritual, eternal life that's mentioned in John 17, 3. I mean, it is a profound truth. You know, today, I was just laughing a little bit. I just thought of this yesterday. There's a lot of people today that want to understand their ancestry, don't they? <laughs> There's this thing. Have you seen it? Ancestry.com. How many? No, no you don't have to tell me. Um, and, and people are doing this. It's like viral to know where you lie and what your heritage is and what's your identity and what culture do you go back to. In fact, I have one daughter. I won't give her name. I have five of them. And we all know in our family that we're Greek. 
But when she took that test, she came back with a high percentage of German. And uh, we just laughed, and it's just funny. And I thought, at the end of the day, what does it, what does it really matter, okay? How much greater GCV that the living God lives within you? How much greater is it to say that I'm a child of God? How much greater is it to know that you've been adopted by God? How much greater is it that the Father's in the Son, the Son is in the Father, and they are in us? That you share that living relationship with holy God, that your sins are forgiven. Listen, when we go to the the elements in just a moment, what a joy it will be to take the Lord's Supper today. That we're in Christ. That he's forgiven all your sin. I know there's some of you, even though when I say that, you practically don't believe that. And you have no assurance because you're not sure if God's grace can cover your sin. But I'm telling you that the more you sin, the more grace would increase. And that your salvation isn't based on your self-righteous efforts, your self-righteous deeds. He adopted you into his family by grace, through faith, and you are part of the family of God. Some of you may even look within our own setting here and think, boy, I didn't come from a great family. Oh, no, listen, your dad is the father. You have Jesus Christ who was co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent with the Father. He lives inside of you. What a tremendous truth. So look back at 1721. Look back at this. Do you see what I mean? He's not talking, speaking linear here in his prayer. But, but he says there that they may believe, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then he, he continues on. Look at verse 22. He says, the glory that you have given me, I've given them that they may be one, even as, here's the example again, even as we are one. And so that's how our Lord prayers. Now, now he's praying for us. You say, well, Scott, obviously we don't have um, perfect unity in this place. Um, I'm not aware of uh, anything, but I do remember pastoring a church at one time, and a guy came up to... There are the difficulty between these two in the life of our church. And he came up to him, and one of my leaders reached out the hand to shake the hand of this other guy who's been in our church and a member for years. And the guy on the other side could not put his hand back out and shake his hand. And you think, well, gosh, can't we just all get along together? Well, that... One brother must be short-sighted as to who the Father is and who the Son is and who the Holy Spirit is. And we're not perfect here because he's praying for this. Look at verse 23. He says, I in them, it's just tremendous. Jesus in you, is, is I in them, the disciples, verse 20, all future believers. And you in me, purpose clause here, that they may become perfectly one doesn't always happen. It's probably like sanctification. You want to be more holy, but invariably you blew it this week. You sinned. I sinned. And so you confess that sin. But you're wanting to be sanctified and be more holy. And here, that truth is similar here. Simultaneously, something is already achieved. Unity, if you will. 
but something is to be perfected, and you need that in your home, and you need that in our church. And so, beloved, let me say this. This is a propositional truth. The unity is, if you will, a spiritual unity, but it has to be demonstrative as well in all of our relationships with one another. You say, this unity is to what end? Just to be unified? Oh, no. There's something far more important. You say, what's more important than that? Put your nose back in the book. I'll show you. Look at this in verse 21. He says, Father, just as you, Father, are in me, I in you, that they also may be in us. Here's another clause. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, our mission flows out of our unity and our love for each other. In other words, it's so important, Grace Church of the Valley, that we're one that we're unified, unified in that intra-Trinitarian relationship that comes to us because we're in Christ. You say, what's at stake? So that the world will know. The reason that the church is so impotent across this country and around this globe, much of it is a lack of unity, both doctrinally and then practically. And so here he says this for mission. Look at verse 23. He, well, he said it there, and again, I and them and you and me. He said it in 21, but in 23, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, comma, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. There it is again. In other words, it's so important because our mission is linked to this. And just a word to some of you. Some of you are here because of a, of a lack of unity. There's splits, there's separations, and all those things. And those are hard, are they not? But listen, you pray for us. You pray for this church. You pray for this leadership team. But it's grounded, if you will, in position it's grounded spiritually, and once we see what the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit do, then it ought to be our chief end to say, how could I ever have a difference with you? I mean, if the Father loves the Son and gives the Son all things, and if the Son in return obeys the Father's will perfectly, and then he promises to send us in 14 through 16 the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has one objective, to magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. That's that Trinitarian relationship. And if they're one, and they live in perfect unity, then may that be our prayer. Look again at 1722. He adds to this. He says, the glory, this is amazing, that you have given me, it's hard to say this, I have given them that they may be one even as we are one. So he's adding here to this thought, what is this glory, if you will? Well, that's too important. I'll save it for next time because I'm out of time. 